The following sermon audio is from The Source Church in Plainfield, Illinois. More information about The Source Church can be found at www.thesourcechurch.life. I couldn't find the button. I couldn't find the button. All right. (laughs) I knew there was a button. I just couldn't see it. Um, Okay, so Isaiah chapter 7, verses 1 through 17. Please stand for the reading of scripture. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Razan the king of Syria, and Pekah the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shirjashib your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. And say to him, be careful, be quiet, Do not fear and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Razan and Syria and the son of Remaliah. Because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah has devised evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and terrify it and let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabiel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Razan. And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David. Is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. This is the holy word of God. Good morning, everyone. Um, I was talking with Jerry Judge this week, and she wanted me to thank the church for all of your care and your prayers amidst her cancer treatments. So, um, yeah, she's very thankful for you. Keep up the good work. Um, And let's just 
bow for prayer before we get into the word. Our Lord God, we do, um, we lift up Jerry before you. And we are thankful for your provision for her so far. For how you've uh, provided a grant to help with the, the costs of the treatment. And for how you've given her time off of work with disability status. And um, just little ways that you've showed your care for her. Lord, we continue to pray that the treatment would be successful. And we pray for her heart in the midst of all of that, uh, that she wouldn't grow discouraged, um, that she would keep her eyes fixed on you, that she would be fed by your word. And Lord, we also pray for Bob as he keeps recovering from heart surgery. We thank you for your mercy in sparing his life. And we ask that you would continue to heal him get him back to um, full status, um, ability to work. We pray that you'd provide for his um, uh, his business, his Midas business. In the meantime, we ask that things would run smoothly without him and that he wouldn't be anxious there. And we pray for his time of forced rest. We ask that it wouldn't be wasted, but that he would have um, glimpses of you and that he would be better off in more than just a physical way because of this time. We thank you for your goodness to their whole family, even in the midst of this turmoil. And we pray for Judy, who's had to carry such a load. Uh, please give her rest as well. We pray also for Nancy at Sunny Hill Nursing Home. Lord, she's, she's frustrated with... Um, lack of mobility, we ask that you would increase her ability to, to use her hands and her legs. Um, but also, Lord, we ask that despite the restrictions she faces, that she would uh, have a clear glimpse of freedom in Christ and know that you are making all things new. And we ask that that would be her hope day in and day out. And Lord, the holidays can, can make, sometimes make the mundane feel all the worst uh, because of it. It's just unbearable at times, the daily grind. And so we ask that you would meet us in the things that feel mundane. Meet us in the world that feels broken around us. And Lord, we pray for those who you've placed over us. We pray for President Biden and Congress, Supreme Court. We pray for Governor Pritzker and the, and the state Congress and the courts and we pray for local leaders as well. And Lord, all of these, we ask that your particular grace would be at work in them, softening their hearts toward Christ. We also pray that your common grace would be at work through them, leading them to make sound laws and to enforce justice and to hate corruption. We pray that they would humbly carry out their duties with a sense of accountability before you. And as for us, Lord... In our mundane lives, we ask that you'd enable us to live quiet lives, as your scripture tells us to, to be well thought of by outsiders, as we show them kindness and, and just the reasonableness of Christ. We pray that you'd enable us to do the good work that you have for each one of us, to do it faithfully. And we pray that our hope would be fully set on the grace to be revealed to us at the coming of Jesus Christ. Our hearts cry out to you, come, Lord Jesus. And now as we turn to your word, we ask that you would make us more ready for that day. 
and also that you would equip us to serve you today. From our fears and sins, release us. Let us find our rest in thee. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Do you ever wonder why prophecies about Jesus can't be a little bit clearer? Just more straightforward. Like if you're going to predict him in advance, why all this shadowy stuff about branches and code names? Why not say, okay, the Messiah's name will be Jesus. He'll be born about 700 years from now in Bethlehem, even though his adopted father Joseph will be a carpenter from Nazareth, engaged to a virgin peasant girl named Mary, who will miraculously be the child's mother. Well, for one thing, the small town of Nazareth would then have a surplus of families with messianic dreams, and all with daughters named Mary and sons named Jesus or Joseph. And there'd be this well-worn pilgrimage path for childbearing from, from Nazareth to, to Bethlehem. So, no, prophecy, it has to be subtle in order to be credible. And the result is then that those who live during or after the prophesied event, they are able to see that the answer was always there. It was always hidden in plain sight. And that then builds our faith to see the wisdom of God embedded in history and yet fulfilled for us today. But in its subtlety, this is a complex passage for sure. And one thing you need to know is that in the book of Isaiah, there are actually three boys with symbolic names. The first is Isaiah's first son, Shir Jashub, meaning a remnant shall return. So in light of the invasion and the exile that were prophesied for God's people, this name was a reminder that God was still with them and there was a future for those who trusted him no matter what came. And uh, the third symbolic name is Isaiah's second son, certainly the catchiest name I've ever heard. Meher Shalal Hashbaz. And uh, you can see in the footnotes of your Bibles for chapter 8, verse 1, this name means the spoil speeds, the prey hastens. So it implies that God's judgment of conquest was coming quickly. So you have those two sons of Isaiah, and then in between those two symbolic names, here we have Emmanuel prophesied for us in chapter 7. And these symbolic names, they create a category for us, actually, of God's word taking on flesh. Which, of course, that's going to be taken to a whole greater level when Jesus, the embodiment of God's definitive message, comes to dwell among us. Now, you may have heard Christmas songs that use the name Emmanuel. We may even know that today's passage is quoted in Matthew chapter 1, verse 23. Matthew writes, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And certainly I hope that the thought of Jesus as God with us gives you joy, not only at Christmas, but throughout the year. But have you ever stopped to think about, like, why? Why the sign of Emmanuel was given in Isaiah's time? What is it a response to in its original context? And the answer is, most simply, it's, it's a response to fear. Fear. In the year 734 B.C., the kingdom of Judah, 
and the capital of Jerusalem and King Ahaz, they were utterly overwhelmed with fear. So today we're going to think about our Christmas fears, and we're going to think about God's Christmas promise, and we're going to think about a warning that Isaiah has for us. So that's our outline, Christmas fears, a Christmas promise, and a Christmas warning. I'm just going to get a drink of water. So why were King Ahaz and company so afraid? There was a new superpower emerging in the region, region, and that was the Assyrian Empire. So over the the previous 200 years, they'd built up the strongest military in the world, and they were on the way to um, becoming the first really world empire. It stretched from eastern Iran all the way west and south through Egypt. So Assyria was looming on the horizon, but Assyria wasn't the most immediate threat for Judah. Not Assyria, but the neighboring and lesser Syria, as well as the northern kingdom of Israel. They had teamed up, and they were threatening the very existence of Judah. So we've got a map here, and uh, you'll see that Syria is most immediately threatened by Assyria. Syria's capital was Damascus. Its king at that time was Rezin. And then Syria and Judah, between them, between Syria and Judah, there's the northern kingdom of Israel. And it's referred to in this passage as Ephraim, because Ephraim was the most populous tribe in that northern kingdom. Ephraim's capital was Samaria, and the king at that time was Pekah, son of Ramalia. So these two neighboring kingdoms, they were terrified of Assyria, and so they were planning to force the southern kingdom of Judah to unite with them and serve in an alliance against Assyria. But as you can read in verse 6, this plan included kind of just absorbing Judah and disposing of Ahaz and his family and placing their own puppet on the throne in Jerusalem. And notice also that in, in verse 1, Ahaz's predecessors are mentioned. So it's, it says, Ahaz, son of Jotham, son of Uzziah. Uh, and the emphasis here is, as you know, verse 2 calls Ahaz the house of David. That's the emphasis. Ahaz is important primarily as a representative of David's dynasty, from which God had said a ruler would come who would shepherd Israel in a kingdom without end. So that's going to help us to understand the Emmanuel prophecy later. In verse, in verse 2, it says of this alliance that's coming against Judah, um, that, that when he heard of it, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of the people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And I don't think we would blame them, right? If foreign tanks were already rolling across the countryside and you heard that a specific person had been appointed to, to be overlord once our government was toppled, you'd kind of be afraid. It's an understandable fear. And for the most part, I think the fears that we struggle with are understandable too. Maybe you're afraid of your loved ones growing apart or dying. Maybe you're scared of the pain of disease or dying yourself. Maybe you look out and the fear is just overwhelming. It's like a a terrifying darkness. Maybe you're afraid of what's within you. You see the darkness of sin there. That's a good fear. Um, Maybe you fear rejection. Maybe you fear conflict. Maybe you fear poverty or loneliness. Maybe you fear missing out. Maybe you fear change. 
whether personal or societal. Maybe you fear things being out of control. So let's just take a moment right now. Just try to identify, really, what are you afraid of? What understandable fears are looming there that sort of take over your thoughts day to day? How are you shaking like a tree? How do those fears affect your joy? Maybe how do your fears affect other people's joy? So you have those fears in your mind? Okay, we'll come back to that later. And I want to say that just because the fear is understandable, that doesn't mean that the fear is harmless or that the fear is permissible. Ahaz should have known better. Ahaz was the 12th king in the line of David, David the man after God's own heart. And so it was part of his job description as king in this line to, to know the word of God and to trust him in hard times, just like a lot of his noble ancestors had done. But Ahaz just wasn't that type of king. He wanted to be like the nations. He didn't want to stand out from them. He wanted to be assured of his safety, even if it came with some compromise. And I think at our most fearful times, we may not be that different. Do we stand distinct from those around us, or does our fear cause us to latch on to exactly what the world chases? Do our fears cause us to hedge our bets with God? Like, okay, I'll give him, I'll give him lip service, I'll give him church attendance, but I can't rely on him too much. I can't put all of my eggs in that basket because, well, it just wouldn't be safe. Ahaz was just that sort of compromiser, and yet the Lord tells Isaiah exactly where to meet this godless king to deliver a gracious promise, a warning and a promise. And he meets him at the um, at a pool. He meets him where there's a water source. We get the sense that Ahaz is probably inspecting the water supply because a siege is going to be coming soon. And Isaiah meets him there and says, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering firebrands at the fierce anger of Razan and Syria and the son of Ramalia, it shall not come to pass. If you are not firm in your faith, you will not be firm at all. So in other words, these guys that are scheming against you, they're just like hot coals pulled out from a fire. They're, they're already going out. So don't play politics. Don't respond in any way. Just trust the Lord to protect you. Do any of us need to hear those same words today? Maybe you have enemies. Maybe you have threats and people who would ruin you if they had the chance. Maybe you're tempted to fear or to trust in your own strategies. So that's a question to ask. Are you reacting to possible negative futures as if God wasn't present, as if God wasn't powerful, as if God wasn't trustworthy? Be careful. Be quiet. Do not fear do not let your heart be faint. If you're not firm in your faith, you will not be firm at all. So this is how our passage deals with Judah's fears in 734 BC and also the fears that plague us this Christmas season. Notice, though, that the, the Lord told Isaiah when he was going out, he was going to deliver his message, he told him to bring his son, 
named A Remnant Shall Return. And this clues us into the fact that this encounter is about more than just the next few years. It's rather this encounter is going to communicate something about the next centuries and beyond. And it's then that Isaiah tells Ahaz to ask for a sign to verify that he need not fear. And here we're going to see what I'm calling God's Christmas promise. Now, if a prophet of God told you to ask for a sign that God would protect you, you'd think that you would probably do it, right? Isaiah says in verse 10 that this sign could be as, as low as Sheol, as deep as Sheol. Maybe, I don't know what that would be, maybe the ground opening up or something. And it can be as high as the heaven, maybe like shooting stars or an eclipse. So Ahaz is really just invited, like, ask for anything. But either out of disdain for Isaiah or maybe misjudging the character of God, he passes. He declines the opportunity. And his words sound, he's, it's like he's trying to paint himself as pious. He says, I, I will not ask. I, I will not put the Lord to the test. Now, it does say in Deuteronomy not to put the Lord to the test, but that was in response to the wilderness generation because they refused to believe God unless he did what they asked. This is a different story altogether when God is actually asking us to engage with him, and then we refuse. Do you ever do that? You think that you're being pious because, well, you're not bothering God with your demands. You're staying put together and and putting a religious smile on things while you're actually falling apart inside. And there's a pride there. And there's a fear of, of others seeing your weakness. And so you refuse God's invitation to communicate, and you prefer to be self-sufficient. But he's invited us to pour out our hearts to him. He's invited us to find in him our refuge. And if we, if we say thanks, but no thanks, if we keep doing that, then that is very much putting the Lord to the test in the bad way. Because like Ahaz, we're not communicating our piety, we're communicating our unbelief. And in the case of Ahaz, it's a defining moment of deciding what his posture toward the Lord would be from from then on. And so Isaiah says, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Back in 11, uh, verse 11, Isaiah had called Yahweh the Lord your God, like Ahaz, the Lord your God. But here in verse 13, he says, you weary my God. It's it's like a a corner's been turned. He's not Ahaz's God anymore. But Isaiah nonetheless goes on to then offer the, the omen in verse 14. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, we know that these words are ultimately fulfilled in Jesus, and yet it seems like there's a double fulfillment at work here. And this, is, this happens a ton in biblical prophecy. So the prophet speaks as if it's just one thing that we're expecting. Let's say it's, it's this big mountain in the distance. But as you get closer to that great mountain, you see that it's actually two peaks with the shorter one standing directly in front of the bigger one. And so you can experience that first peak. And it, it truly is a fulfillment of the prophecy. It's part of what the prophet saw But yet, as you go over that first peak, you see that there's still more fulfillment to happen. And it's a fulfillment that's similar but is greater in the distance. And a great example of this dynamic is God's covenant with David in 2 Samuel 7. Uh, There are ways in which it's 
immediately fulfilled in his son Solomon. And yet, there's some language that's reaching beyond him to the greater peak, the true son of David, Jesus. Now, I say that this seems like a a case of double fulfillment because look down at verse 16. It says, For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. And we know this happened two years from this sign being given in 732 B.C. Assyria did conquer Syria. And though not fully destroying Ephraim right at that time, many regions were overrun and a first deportation of Israelites out of the land to Assyria happened. And shortly after that, Pekah, king of Israel, was assassinated by his own people. So both of these kingdoms that were threatening Ahaz were dealt with. And, that, and they were dealt with before a newborn child would be able to choose the good or the evil. So it seems that Emmanuel's arrival as a child conceived at that time, it did happen. It did, there, there was a specific deliverance being worked for Judah right then. But then that leaves us with the question, how could there have been an immediate fulfillment of the prophecy at that time? Like certainly we don't think that there was an earlier virgin birth. But think about it this way. If I tell you, the young maiden will conceive and bear a son, what's your natural thought? Oh, okay, uh, she's going to get married and have a honeymoon baby. She, she was, she's a maiden now, she's a virgin now, but she's going to have a baby, so something's going to happen. That's, our, that's where we go naturally. And many interpreters have seen this as perhaps Ahaz's new wife becoming pregnant with their heir, Hezekiah, who was actually a godly king. And and his reign in many ways showed that God was with his people. And also in the the ancient Near Eastern texts that we find in the surrounding cultures, there's this formula, the young woman will bear a son, and it's used to announce the birth of a royal son. So that could fit. Hezekiah as an immediate fulfillment. Another theory is that Isaiah is speaking more enigmatically, and he's um, he's saying that the pregnant maiden right now is the daughter of Zion. Daughter of Zion is a, a personification of the people of God that runs throughout the book of Isaiah, and she's particularly spoken of in the latter chapters of Isaiah as giving birth. And so, according to this theory, the the son that Isaiah is imagining being born at this point is the remnant of Israel that will return after the exile and show that God is with us. So whichever of those you think is right or, or you think it's something else altogether, it doesn't matter a whole lot because, remember, God's purpose at this point is it's kind of to confound Ahaz while also at the same time comforting the faithful. And we know that Emmanuel doesn't only have an immediate fulfillment. It wasn't only something for Isaiah's day. We know that not only because of Matthew chapter 1, but we also know because the next chapters in Isaiah go on to speak more futuristically and enigmatically about Emmanuel. The name recurs unexpectedly twice in chapter 8, where Isaiah is speaking out of, you know, reflecting the faith of the remnant people. And he's talking about God's victory over the far countries. And uh, he invokes the name Emmanuel. And then this same child then is assumed to be described in chapter 9, which we'll look at next week, the passage 
for to us a child is born, etc. So these words clearly point to, to this growing theme of, of the messianic shoot from the stump of Jesse and to a deliverance that's more than just militaristic in nature. In chapter 9, the child is even called mighty God. So God is not just sending us a, a regional deliverance as a sign, but this sign is, is twofold, and it's, it's also speaking of how he will come himself in the word made flesh, redeeming not just Judah, not just the Davidic kingship, but the whole world. Now the challenge about applying this passage is to believe that in a terrifying world, God is truly with us. And the funny thing about holidays is that a lot of times they come to completely contradict their origins, right? Um, I, I could use Elf as an example. Um, but, uh, you know, we see Emmanuel. We see Emmanuel as um, this declaration that we don't need to be afraid. But this Christmas, are you really celebrating your deliverance from fear? Or are you using Christmas traditions and foods and gatherings and entertainment as a cloak or a distraction or an opiate for your fears? Sometimes I feel like I could drown any problem with eggnog. But Jesus didn't come so that once a year we can just have this happy holiday zone, right? That really cheapens it if... if that's what we do with the sign of Emmanuel. He came so that once and for all, we could have a joy that transcends even the most hellish of circumstances. So we need to repent of the whole fear-filled, pious charade, and we need to deal with our God this Christmas. Don't use your Christmas to numb your fears, but use it to face them with a fresh understanding of God's promise here. Name your fears plainly to him. Hear again the good proclamation that he is with you in Jesus. Do we understand the significance of God with us in Jesus? I worry that this concept has become too familiar to us. Uh, we don't even think about it. Have we become numb to the spiritual, spiritual reality? It's described beautifully in Romans 8. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine not having sufficient clothes, even if you're exposed to violence. In all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. This is what it means that God is with us. And some of you have experienced his presence with you in things even more difficult than I have. But I have lived enough to bank on this reality of his presence with me. Another great passage that we're going to look at in the new year is Hebrews 13, 5 to 6. It says, Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. Why? It answers. For God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? See, it's not just wishful thinking. His, his presence with us is practical. It results in confidence and joy that dispels fear. So given this passage's ultimate fulfillment in Christ that we acknowledge, does it even really matter then why this sign was originally given? 
I'm arguing, yes, it does, and here's why. Because Emmanuel is a double-edged sign. He was in the day of Ahaz. He still is today. And with that, we're going to turn to our final point, that Isaiah has a warning for us here at Christmas time. So just as the son called Emmanuel, he encapsulates both messages of Isaiah's sons, that a remnant will return, the preservation of God's people. He also encapsulates that judgment is coming quickly. Both are true in Emmanuel. Jesus stands as a sign for us, regardless of what we do with him. So he's going to be a sign either of mercy or judgment. And if we will trust and we will find ourselves in him, then we will be in this remnant that's protected. And Jesus is with us always, even to the end of the age. He is God with us. But if we reject him, he stands there nonetheless as God the Son, who entered human history, who taught and performed miracles, who died, who rose to conquer death and anything else that you might fear. He redeemed a people, and he changed history. And you can't escape the sign. You can't escape it. Like, wh- Why is this reckoned the year 2022? Because Jesus took on flesh. And his servants are multiplying everywhere. His word is going out everywhere. And it, it's affecting not only church life, but also art, government, language, indirectly every aspect of civilization. I read an article this week about how Christianity has so formed and defined Western culture that we can't even really argue against the gospel and against the church without using categories that actually originate from our faith. And while this may feel like, oh, that, that's waning in North America, it's still increasing in South America and Africa and Asia. This is a global project, and there's no escaping the sign of Emmanuel. That's a a Christmas warning for us from this passage. You can't escape God's sign, and ultimately you can't ignore it. It will either reorient your life and your approach to fears, or it'll wreck your life and give you over to your fears. And that was true for Ahaz. He wanted nothing to do with a sign from God. And that's why Isaiah, in verse 14, introduces the, the Emmanuel sign with the word, therefore. Therefore, it was God's response to Ahaz's unbelief. So while the Emmanuel promise is good news, ultimately, in the short run for Ahaz, it was a word of judgment. And you can see this with the surprise ending of verse 17. So just before that, in verse 16, we're like, okay, that's, that sounds good. The two nations who are attacking at the moment are going to be deserted. But then, bam, verse 17, the Lord is going to bring upon you these horrific days, not through these smoldering firebrands, but through the king of Assyria himself. So God is preserving a people but he is also ensuring judgment on the hard-hearted. And the same dynamic is reiterated for us in Luke chapter 2 when Simeon held up the, the boy Jesus and, um, and he told Mary, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And so it is today and, and so it will be at the end of all things. The only question that really matters is what did you do with the sign of Emmanuel. And that's why we share with all, we plead with all. That's why we take care to receive the divine word who became flesh and pitched his tent among us. 
Ahaz, however, decided to ignore that word. And instead, he asked for help from his immediate threat. He asked for help from the dreaded king of Assyria himself. He must have thought that he could somehow avoid verse 17 if he secured the friendship of his worst fear. But the result is recorded for us in 2 Chronicles 28. It says, The Lord humbled Judah because of Ahaz, king of Israel, for he had made Judah act sinfully and had been very unfaithful to the Lord. So Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, came against him and afflicted him instead of strengthening him. For Ahaz took a portion from the house of the Lord and the house of the king and of the princes and gave tribute to the king of Assyria, but it did not help him. The Lord's humbling of Judah meant that Assyria in subsequent years would rage against many of Judah's cities, and Judah would be a vassal state for some time. And you can see that that results in poverty. That's described in verse 15, where we see that Emmanuel would eat curds and honey. Uh, You might think, like, oh, that that doesn't sound so bad, curds and honey. But uh, verse 22 clarifies that's poor people food because of the distress on the land. There's no meat. There's no grain. All they have to eat is curds and honey. And uh, this translates, this actually translates to fulfillment in Jesus as well, if you think about it. One Isaiah scholar writes that because of the unbelief of Ahaz, the promised Messiah would be born into poverty, heir to a meaningless throne in a conquered land. So refusing to rely on God and instead going to Assyria in Assyria itself to to try to address his fears, Ahaz really just took the tiger by the tail. Because just like Alexander the Great or Napoleon, you know, the Assyrian Empire had this mindset and it was world domination. That was their ideology. So any alliances that you make with an Assyria, that's certain to be temporary. It's certain to come with conditions that you didn't necessarily count on. And there's a parallel there. You can be sure that the same is true for anything that you turn to to relieve your fears. It'll turn on you. There are conditions with the alliance that it is making with you. And you think that, that it, that's your answer. Uh, it might be for some time. You know, your Syria, your Ephraim might go away. But at what cost? It's been said that whatever we rely on, instead of trusting in God, will eventually turn and devour us. And that was the case for Ahaz. He could have chosen to trust the Lord, but instead he leaned on Assyria, who would not become Judah's savior, but Judah's tormentor. And from that time on, the kingship of Judah was always under the thumb of foreign rulers. So not only did Ahaz compromise the kingdom, but then, maybe out of some sort of bradish frustration, he took this hard turn away from following the true God. And we read that in his later reign, he set up metal images He actually placed an altar to Assyrian gods in the temple of the Lord. And he offered his sons as sacrifices to Moloch. According to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. And that's just a picture of when we live according to our fears. And then we arrogantly double down on those choices. It leads us to some very, very dark places. But for you, I am confident of better things. 
Isaiah 7 is a call for us to stand firm as a faith-filled remnant in a world that's full of chaos and trouble. And this trust in the God who has spoken will be rewarded. And it's not going to depend on the shifting patterns of politics. It's not going to depend upon the worthiness of church leaders. It only depends on the one son of David who succeeds where Ahaz failed. And his kingdom will last forever. So you can receive the sign of Emmanuel as good news of how you are loved, you are protected, you are kept from all danger. You can remember that Jesus was born into that very weakness and poverty and pain that you fear. He became one of us, and he is one of us still. And when you perceive that, that in Jesus, God is with us, then, then things really start to happen. The tyranny of your wicked heart, the futility of this life, the power of the destroyer are all undone in Christ. And the words of Isaiah 8, they may take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand, for God is with us. So some of us this morning, we might need to repent because we've been letting fear control us, or, or we've We've let our hearts run after things that they shouldn't have in order to get us out of what we fear. And it may work for a while. Or maybe it's already blowing up in your face. Maybe you, you've turned to a certain relationship or substance or behavior or questionable opportunity in order to be your savior from fear. But I would guess that sooner or later, Assyria is going to start to show her true colors. And if so, that's a gift from God. At times, you know, he seems to be actually facilitating his people's very undoing, but then afterward we see that that was necessary so that we could grasp his sufficiency and that we could come to actually live without fear. He's kind to let us see the, the fruit of that continued fear in our lives. He's kind when he shows it to us before it, we really get to the point of no return. And some of that correction is just kind of woven into the fabric of our world, you know. You can think about parents who are, like, so afraid of their child going in a certain direction that they, the pressure they put on that child actually drives them to go off the rails in a different direction. Or you can think of a, a person who is so afraid of conflict that they don't do or say the necessary thing to prevent conflict from overtaking their whole life. So I want to say, if God is giving you a glimpse today of what your fear is leading to, thank him for that pain and learn from it. Let it drive you to the, to the life where you live in the good fear of God and then by faith are able to fear nothing else. Remember those fears that we identified earlier? Remember that? I want you to bring those back to mind. And now ask God to show you what does trusting him look like with those fears? What would it look like to really, truly trust him with that, that area of your life that maybe was off limits, that, that you just didn't feel safe letting go of in a certain way? What does it look like to trust God? Maybe it's a step of boldness. Maybe it's being willing to show your weakness or leave yourself vulnerable according to the rules of the world. Are there any schemes that you need to back away from? Are there any safety nets that you have in place that actually expose you to the greater danger of sin? 
If we heed Isaiah's suggestion to Ahaz and we boldly ask for a reminder of the sign of Emmanuel, we can say, yes, I want that sign. Remind me of that sign, God. Remind me that God is with us. Then, indeed, it will be a season of wonder and happy mystery. And then if you get that glimpse of our deliverer, that it will dispel your fears. It'll dispel your fears about the world, what it may do to you, your fears about others and what they may think of you, fears about death, poverty, significance. You see, Emmanuel for the fearful, this sign is truly a feast and a reason for feasting. And it's a song and it's a reason for singing and it's a gift And it's a reason to give grace to all. So let's ask God to see that more clearly now. Lord, we pray that we would really, really, truly believe that you are with us in Jesus. That we would entrust our whole lives to you. That we would not be slaves to fear. That we would not operate out of a sense of of self-protection. We'd be able to be open and to walk boldly in this world as your people. So Lord, teach us to to be careful, to be quiet, not to fear, not to let our hearts be faint. And we pray that we would also be faithful, especially in this season, to point others to the sign of Emmanuel. Let it be what's on our lips and what's proven through our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.